I realized when I was um, getting ready to share with you this morning that I have not preached since we started the new school year. So for those of you that are new this new school year, um, my name is Leslie Rowe, and I am officially a co-pastor here at Denton North. I still can't quite get over that designation, um, but it's one I've been working for about three years now to try and accept. And But I do um, preach some here, and I'm excited to get to share with you this morning. I want to say one thing um, about something Josh said in the announcements. He was talking about the um, visitor lists that we're passing around. So if you're our guest this morning, um, we just want you to know that that is not our way of um, manipulating or trying to coerce you into anything you don't want to do. Um, our guest list is really just for us to try and make personal contact with you. Um, so for you to ask any questions, to share any needs that you might have that we could help with, to get to know you personally if you decide you want to stay and be a part of our church body. Um, and so it's not anything contrived. It's just the best thing we could come up with to kind of make sure that we could touch base with all of our guests instead of um, anybody slipping through the cracks. So that's all that is. And if you don't want to sign your name on it, please don't feel obligated to do that. Um, but if you would be interested in like talking to a live person and asking any questions you have, then please feel free to put your name on there. So I probably had more trouble writing this sermon than any sermon that I've prepared. I spent four days working on it and didn't come up with one sentence to write down, not one. I talked to Brad two or three times during that time. I read scripture, I prayed, I prayed some more, I researched, and still not one sentence was written down. So I was frustrated and I was confused and by now you're probably thinking, wow, what difficult, controversial topic are we talking about today? Well, the topic is salvation and grace. Foundational. Basic. I should be able to preach this sermon backwards and forwards with my hand tied behind my back in my sleep. I mean, this should be pretty easy. Brad was probably thinking, why is she having so much trouble with this topic? And he was probably beginning to wonder if he should reconsider my position on staff. So I texted Kurt and my boys really frustrated one morning, probably Friday morning. And I just said, help, pray for me, is basically what I said. And after that, um, I felt like God was saying to me, okay, do you get the point here? This is what it feels like when you try to earn your salvation rather than letting grace change you, rather than letting me save you. Um, see, I think a lot of times I should be able to earn my own salvation. It can't be that hard to be good. What in the world is wrong with me? And when it's harder than I anticipate, I get frustrated and I get confused, just like I did with this sermon. And it's like quicksand. The harder I try to earn my own salvation, the deeper I sink into not being able to save myself and the more I struggle. And I wish that I could explain the feelings to you that I've had this week, but I think you kind of know 
what that is if you've ever been in that place. And so instead of pushing me towards God, it pushes me away from him. And I miss out on a relationship with him because I'm so busy trying to do it all on my own. Kind of like a toddler that says, I do it myself. And they don't get anywhere with that. So trying to change myself and prove that I'm worthy, God whispers to me, you don't have to do that. You can't do that. Just stop and say help. I wish I could tell you that after I realized that God was using a lot of this as his own personal object lesson to me, that the sermon then poured forth and that I am perfectly ready to preach this lesson this morning, that it didn't. God just kept saying to me that this was about him and not about me. And so we're going to start by reading his word this morning and we'll see where he wants to go with this. So we're going to start with Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we're in the middle of a series called From Jesus to Paul to Practical Living. And one of the things that Brad's done a great job of each week is showing us contrasting scriptures between what Jesus says and what Paul says. Um, And I didn't so much go that direction today. I actually chose two passages, one from Paul and one from Jesus, that I feel like pretty much back each other up and are pretty well in sync with each other. So this is the first one. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Jesus Christ. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And then John 3, 10 through 18, this is a very familiar scripture for most of us. But while it may be familiar, uh, that doesn't explain away or excuse away the power of this scripture. So this is where um, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is asking him questions. And I'm starting partway through um, Jesus' answer to him. Jesus said, you're a respected teacher of Israel and you don't know these basics? Listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. 
I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. There is nothing secondhand here, no hearsay. Yet, instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate with questions. If I tell you things that are as plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, what use is there in telling you of things that you can't see, the things of God? No one has ever gone up into the presence of God except the one who came down from that presence, the Son of Man. In the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up, and everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, will gain a real life, eternal life. And here's the familiar part. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his Son, his one and only Son. Now you can put your name in the spot, in that spot. This is how much God loved Leslie. This is how much God loved Kurt. This is how much God loved Josh. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why. So that, you, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. See, I think part of the problem I had with this sermon is that salvation is pretty simple. And we've heard it so many times, and many of us have taught it so many times, that it's almost kind of boring. I found myself wanting to put a different spin on it, bring something new, bring a profound way of understanding it, make it more entertaining. Why? Why? It is a message that's not only one of eternal life, The message of salvation is simple, but it's complicated. The message has far-reaching implications, and it's one that encompasses the total plan of God to redeem people from the ravages of sin, death, Satan, and the curse that's on the earth now. You see, it's simple, but it's profound. It doesn't need me to make it more entertaining. It doesn't need me to put a new spin on it. It's just as wonderful and just as powerful as it's always been. So let's talk a little bit about salvation and grace. First of all, we have a sin problem. That's pretty obvious from what Paul said and what Jesus said. And not just a few of us have this problem, but every one of us have this problem. Ephesians starts by telling us that we are sinful and disobedient And because of that, we're subject to God's anger. A lot of other um, versions interpret that God's wrath, which is even stronger than anger. See, God is a God of justice. It's who he is. And who God is cannot change. He cannot compromise his righteousness and his justice to forgive us. His justice demands that a penalty be paid. 
And Romans tells us that that penalty is death. But number two, and this is the start of the better news, is God loves us. He loves us so much. He wants to walk with us and talk with us. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to save us from the penalty of death, and he wants to give us life instead, beginning now. Not just sometime in the future, but starting now. And so Christ, God's son, the exact representation of God, chose to pay that price for us. He didn't hold a lottery and he didn't choose a tribute. He decided to do it himself. His relationship with us has always been personal and our salvation is as well. He chose to live among us as a human, a sinless human, so he could pay the price for us. And this is what it means that he chose to live among us. This is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You are familiar with the generosity of our master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor and we became rich. The second scripture, I've put together two um, readings from two different chapters of Hebrews. It's Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, and 4, 15 and 16. And I put these two together because I think it helps us to see when we look at them together exactly what it means that Jesus decided to be human. He had to be make like, made like his brothers in every way. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I want you to think undercover boss here. They've built it from the ground up. They've invested everything they have in this business. They've invested their time, their energy, their money to make it successful. They've hired all the people that are in their company. They're making good money. They have a lot of flexibility with their time. They are in charge and in control of the entire company. Yet they choose to leave that on this show and become just a common worker. Somebody who's just starting in the company. They take the lowest position and they let those people that they hired and put in their place boss them around and tell them what to do and teach them how to do their job. Why would they do that? Because they want to see what it's like to be an employee in their company. See, Jesus knows what it's like to be us. He came to see what it's like to be human. He understands on a practical level what we're thinking and what we're experiencing. He can help us because he became like us. As one of us, he lived a sinless life. He was crucified to pay for our sins, not his own. And he was raised again so that we can be saved and live again. He didn't do this because we earned it or because we deserve it. 
but it is his gift to us out of his great love for us. See, that's what grace is. We got the opposite of what we deserved. We deserved God's wrath because we sinned against him, but instead he saves us. Grace is also who our God is. He can't change that. He is a gift-giving God. So we have a choice. We don't just drift into salvation. We're saved by grace, and it's God's gift to us, and it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God, but he doesn't force us to take it. See, our God is a very patient God, and we have to accept the gift. And once we accept it, we can quit trying to save ourselves. Why is that so hard for us? Why is that so hard for us? Maybe it's because grace cuts directly against the grain of human thinking, because it's not fair, and we tend to value fairness. Well, let me qualify that. We tend to value fairness as long as it's dealing with other people. We want them to get what they deserve, but when it's dealing with us, we want grace and mercy. And so we do value fairness, but there's a bit of a catch to that. So if someone does something wrong, he should get what's coming. If someone does right, they should get rewarded for it. But if someone does wrong and gets rewarded in spite of it or doesn't get punished for it, we protest. That's not fair. But the reality of fair is that if our God was fair, all of us would go to hell because all of us have sinned. We also naturally resist God's grace because it robs us of our pride. We can't claim we did anything to get it. And if you did anything to earn it or deserve it, in your mind, if you've done anything to earn or deserve salvation, that's not grace. If God owes it to you, because you're a pretty good person and you've tried to do the best you can, that's not grace. And the Bible says in the scriptures we just read, we're saved by grace. But because it's a gift, we have a choice. The thief had nails through both hands, the thief on the cross, so he couldn't work. He had a nail through each foot, so he couldn't run errands for God. He couldn't lift a hand or a foot toward his salvation, and yet Christ offered him the gift of God, and he took it. And it's the same way with us. We may not be hanging on a cross, but we can't do anything to earn our own salvation. Even though grace is a free gift from God, and even though we don't do anything to earn it, it leads us to obedience. That was the last part of that Ephesians scripture. Is so we can do the good works that God has prepared for us to do. See, grace is a teacher. Grace is a transformer. It's the difference between obeying and doing things so that I will be accepted, loved, and saved. And between being accepted, loved, and saved... Therefore, I obey and I do those things. 
What does it look like to live life as someone who is saved by grace? How does it change me? See, that's one of the things that we're trying to do in this particular sermon series, is how does this affect my everyday life? What does this look like, practically speaking? And so I have just a few things I want to share with you. I could probably go on for days about how practically this should look in our life. There's just so much to it. It's such a big thing. Um, But I narrowed it down to just a few. So the first one is, it looks like being humble. See, my pride is broken. I can't take credit for anything in my life. All the glory goes to God. He didn't save me because of one thing I did. I know I deserve nothing. I know I didn't earn salvation. And so I should be humble. In every trouble that enters my life, I should receive without grumbling. I've already been saved. And every pleasure that I receive, I should be absolutely amazed that God gave me something else. That God did another good thing for me. See, it changes the way I view what happens in life. Grace teaches us the reality that we're more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe. Yet we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared to hope. And that can only lead to one place, humility. The second thing is that one of the things grace teaches us is that my behavior doesn't depend on anyone else's. So my behavior doesn't depend on what you do. My behavior doesn't depend on what my husband does. It doesn't depend on what your teachers do. It doesn't depend on what anyone else does. And so practically speaking, what that looks like is I'm able to say I'm sorry. When I've messed up and I've hurt someone and I've caused harm or pain, I'm able to say I'm sorry. I'm able to forgive myself and other people. A lack of deep belief in the gospel is the main cause of unforgiveness in the life of a Christ follower. If we fail to forgive ourselves and other people, that's not simply a lack of obedience. It's a failure to believe we're saved by grace. So we are able, when grace is our teacher, to forgive ourselves and not beat ourselves up every time we sin and fall short. It teaches us to forgive other people when they can't be perfect and live up to our expectations, and when they sin and fall short. And if some of you are thinking that grace may be for everybody else out there, but it's not for me. God's not going to save me. You don't know me when you talk about grace. And if that's you, then you need to think, since all God's saving is by grace, There's absolutely no reason to think I am excluded. See, if it it was anything that I did on my own, then yeah, I probably need to be worried. But it's nothing I did on my own. So why would I be excluded from that? Everyone has the same opportunity to receive grace. 
And then other, another thing that happens along these same lines of our behavior not depending on others is we're able to extend grace to other people. So I want to read you a story. This is a true story. Um, it's not just a story that someone writ, wrote for a sermon illustration. Um, and I think it exemplifies this idea of extending grace. It was one of the most extraordinary birthday parties ever held. No, it wasn't in a plush ballroom of a grand hotel. No, there weren't famous celebrities, nor any rich or powerful people there. It was held at 3.30 a.m. in a small, seedy cafe in Honolulu. The guest of honor was a prostitute. The fellow guests were prostitutes. And the man who threw it was a Christian minister. The idea came to Christian minister Tony Campalo very early one morning as he sat in the cafe. He was drinking coffee at the counter when a group of prostitutes walk in and took up the stools around him. One of the prostitutes, Agnes, lamented the fact that not only was it her birthday tomorrow, but that she'd never had a birthday party. Tony thought it would be a great idea to surprise her with a birthday party. So he learned from the cafe owner, a guy named Harry, that the girls came in every morning around 3.30. Tony agreed with him to set the place up for a party. Word somehow got out on the streets, so by 3.15 the next morning, the place was packed with prostitutes, the cafe owner and his wife, and Tony. When Agnes walked in, she saw streamers, balloons, Harry holding a birthday cake, and everyone screaming out, Happy Birthday! She was overwhelmed. Tears poured down her face as the crowd sang happy birthday. When Harry called on her to cut the cake, she paused. She'd never had a birthday cake and wondered if she could take it home to show her mother. When Agnes left, there was a stunned silence. Tony did what a Christian minister should do. He led Harry, Harry's wife, in a room full of prostitutes in a prayer for Agnes. It was a birthday party rarely seen in Honolulu, thrown by a Christian minister for a 39-year-old prostitute who had never had anyone go out of their way to do something like this and who expected nothing in return. You see, we've received what we haven't earned and we don't deserve. And that should teach us to offer the same to other people, to other people that live radically different lives than we do to other people that don't know about Jesus or don't believe he loves them or don't believe that they deserve his forgiveness. We are able to extend grace to others. The third thing that it should look like in our lives is we should be grateful. We should be overflowing with thankfulness. When we realize that everything we are and everything we have comes from God, through nothing we did, it should lead us to acknowledge him. And it should lead to praise and worship. It also means looking to the trustworthy hand of the one we worship for whatever it is he's ready to give us. So that we can respond the same way Job did. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're thankful for what he gives us, whatever that is. And we don't grumble and complain about what he hasn't given us. We're grateful. 
When we fully realize that we don't deserve anything and that everything we have is a gift from God, we can't help but have a thankful heart, one of gratitude that comes from humility. Fourth, we're able to serve others. Not only are we able to serve others, but we're able to think, how can I serve them sacrificially? Not how can I serve them conveniently, because that's the easier way to serve, and it's what I'm tempted to default to a lot of times. What do I have time to do? How much money do I have to give? Um, What's not going to put too much of a burden on me and my family? But we have to learn how to serve where our first thought is, what can I sacrifice in order to serve this person? Grace teaches us to take risks. And there were three different areas that I kind of thought of along these lines. It teaches us to take risks in loving lavishly. See, Jesus lavishly loved us. He has heaped gift after gift after gift on us. And so it allows us to take a risk and not worry about what's going to happen when other people see who the real me is. It allows us to take a risk and open ourselves to them so that we can love them. Um, It allows us to take the risk of what if that person hurts me when I decide to love them? What if they don't reciprocate? Or what if they don't, um, it doesn't change anything about them? See, Jesus took that risk with us. And if we let that teach us, we take that risk to love other people. We take the risk to speak up. We take the risk to share the news of our salvation and of grace with other people. We take the risk of sharing that with even people that we believe are the most hardened and can't change. And we have a list. Each one of us have a list of people we don't believe can be changed. We don't say that out loud. We don't have it written anywhere. But you watch your reaction to people, and you'll know when one of those people walks in the door. You'll know because you don't want to tell them the good news. Because you don't believe the good news can change them. You don't believe grace can change them. But when we are aware of our own salvation and grace, we're able to move past that because we believe that our God and his goodness and his salvation and his grace can change even the most hardened sinner. And then we will take the the risk to give generously. And for this one, I want to share with you a parable out of a book called The Unorthodox Heretic. And so I'm just going to read it to you. Um, Jesus withdrew privately by boat to a solitary place, but the crowds continued to follow him. Evening was now approaching, and the people, many of whom had traveled a great distance, were growing hungry. Seeing this, Jesus sent his disciples out to gather food, but all they could find were five loaves of bread and two fishes. Then Jesus asked that they go out again and gather up the provisions that the crowd had brought to sustain them in their travels. Once this was accomplished, a vast mountain of fish and bread stood before Jesus. Upon seeing this, he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Standing before the food and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks to God and broke the bread. Then he passed the food among his twelve disciples. 
Jesus and his friends ate like kings in full view of the starving people. But what was truly amazing, what was miraculous about this meal, was when they had finished the massive banquet, there were not even enough crumbs left to fill a starving person's hand. See, everything we have comes from God, and he generously gave it to us. And our biggest obstacle to giving generously is greed. And that's what that parable illustrates. We want to keep what ourselves we want to keep for ourselves and our own pleasure what God has given us. And guess who that reflects on? That reflects on Jesus. See, the initial shock about reading this parable is that it has made Jesus look selfish and inhumane. He's the one that sat with his disciples and they ate in view of all these hungry people until they were full and nothing was left for anyone else. But we know that Jesus is good and is loving and is kind. But we, the Bible tells us, are the ones who reflect Jesus to those who don't know him. And so if we live a life of greed, the world is going to think that Jesus is greedy. If we live a life not giving generously, the world is going to think Jesus is not generous. What does our life say about our Lord? Does it scream salvation and grace? Or does it scream selfish and greedy? If we truly believe everything we have comes from God and that he's a gift giver, then we'll risk giving generously. Because we want to be like him. And because we know there's more where that came from if he chooses to give it to us. But how dare we take what he's given us to share with other people and hold it for ourselves? That's not the reason he gave it to us. He gave it to us to go out and give generously so people would know he's a good and generous God. So living a life as a saved person, living a life of salvation, looks like taking the risk to give generously. And then finally, it looks like remembering. See, why do we have such a hard time remembering? God says over and over in the Bible, remember, don't forget. What has and is and will God give you and God do in your life? We need to remember those things. What is it he has saved you from? What is it he is saving you from? What is it he's going to save you from? What does that look like in your life? Because it looks like something very specific. Where were you and where were you headed when he found you? The song Amazing Grace says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So take out the word wretch and fill it in. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone greedy like me. That saved a sex addict like me. That saved someone fearful like me. That saved a drug addict like me. 
It, I mean, our list could go on and on. Who were you before Christ? What did he save you from and what is he saving you from? We have to take time to meditate on this question for time, from, from time to time so that we remember, so that we don't forget and we don't start to think we need to make the gospel sound a little more exciting. And when we do that, we can love others gratefully and extravagantly. When we live a life of salvation and grace, when we remember what God in his grace has saved us from, how can we not treat others gratefully and extravagantly? How can we withhold the good God gave us that we didn't deserve? How can we not tell others about my good God and the gifts he offers to them? And when we remember, we worship. When I remember, when I really remember what God has saved me from, the love he has for me, the lengths he went to in order to save me, how can I not worship him? It bubbles up and overflows. I can't contain it anymore when I remember it. So we've got to take time. We've got to build time to think about and meditate on who we were and what he saved us from and what he's still doing in our lives and what he's going to do in our lives. Last night when we were at the Focus 20-year um, celebration, we sang the song, This is Amazing Grace. And as I was kind of thinking about my sermon today and what I was going to say about salvation and grace and how simple yet complicated it is, and these words really spoke to me. And it says, who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The king of glory, the king above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless? in awe and wonder the king of glory the king above all kings who brings our chaos back into order who makes the orphan a son and daughter the king of glory the king of glory who rules the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance the king of glory the king above all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life that I would be set free. Oh Jesus, I sing for all you've done for me. See, that is salvation. That is grace. And that is worship. I can't think about it without it leading to worship of my good God. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. So we're going to take communion together. And I'm going to give you just about three to five minutes. And we're just going to take some quiet time. And I want you to use that time to reflect and remember on what he saved you from. And I want you to let that overflow into worship while we take communion and as we sing a few more songs of praise here in a few minutes. So take three to five minutes of quiet time, and then I'm going to come back up to kind of end that and say a prayer, and then we'll all take communion together.
Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.